John 5 is our text for this afternoon. We're going to be reading verses uh, 1 through 9, and this is the word of Almighty God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five (coughs) roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Pray with me, friends. Lord, it is a privilege to open your word. And it's a privilege to sing your praise. And it's a privilege to know the Lord Jesus, who died to pay the price for our sins, who rose to conquer death, It is a privilege to call you Lord. And to know that means both that you are God and that you are master. And I pray that today we will be a people surrendered to your lordship for your glory. We ask it all. We submit it all in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. John chapter 20 Verses 30 and 31 say this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When John wrote for us the book that we call the Gospel according to John, He wrote it with the express intent that people like you and and me, that we would read it, that we would believe in Jesus, and that we would be saved. John, inspired by God, wanted you to know the true identity of Jesus. John wanted you to know what Jesus has done. And John wanted you, by the grace of God, to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus For eternal life. It was last Christmas season when we began to look at the opening of this gospel. We looked at chapter one, we looked at the prologue. And from December of 2020 to May of 2021, we walked through chapters one through four of John. Then we took a little break and we looked at the books of Jonah and Titus. And I am excited to tell you today, we're coming back to our look at the gospel according to John. Lord willing, we're going to spend several months seeing the goodness, the glory, the kindness, the deity of Jesus. Now, in order to do this right, I feel like I need to catch us up with a little context, a little contextual information. You guys willing to to tag along with me as I give you the context of where we've been since it's been a while? All right, good. If you're not, just rest for a second and we'll wake you up when we're done. 
John likely wrote this gospel around A.D. 85, maybe 90, while he was serving in the city of Ephesus. The gospel, according to John, is likely the last of the four gospels to be written, and it contains a goodly amount of information that the other gospel writers didn't emphasize. For example, John's gospel is clearer than any of the other writers about the deity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Now, that's not to say Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't tell us Jesus is God. They did. John just tells us more clearly. And if you think about it, that's not really hard to understand. John knew what the other gospel writers had written, and John had no reason to repeat the work done by the three other evangelists. However, John did know As the church neared the end of the first century, she needed to be protected from the influence of false teachers who would deny the true deity or the true humanity of Christ. One stat that I shared with you way back when we started this is that 93% of the material in John is not found in the other Gospels. It's fresh. It's a guy saying, here's some stuff that we need to finish telling you about. Well, chapter 1 of John it begins with a prologue, little introduction, verses 1 to 18. And there you see many of the themes that go through this gospel. They're made very plain. Jesus is God. Jesus is eternally God. He took on flesh for the purpose of displaying his glory and saving his people. Jesus is superior, we see in two places in the, in the prologue, superior to John the Baptist, which means He is superior to the entire Old Testament system of the prophets. And Jesus brings into the family of God those who come to him in faith. Later in chapter 1, you can see John the Baptist pointing out that Jesus is the Savior that's been promised by God. We watch Jesus begin to call to himself his disciples. And then we go to chapter 2. And interestingly in the structure, chapter 2 and chapter 4 of John, they begin and they end with miracles performed in the city of Cana in Galilee. Little bookends to that section. In chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. What does that do for us? It displayed for us the power of Jesus. It showed us the sweet kindness of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus used Jewish ceremonial water jars to hold the wine indicates to us that something greater than the old system of sacrifice has arrived. Later, Jesus drives the animal sellers and the money changers out of the temple. And there we saw Jesus claim to have authority over the very temple of God And then Jesus tells the Jews, if they would tear down this temple, he'd rebuild it in three days. And we find out there that Jesus has come to be the replacement who is infinitely greater than the temple. John chapter 3, Jesus meets with a Jewish religious teacher named Nicodemus, comes to Jesus and wants to find out what Jesus is all about. And the Savior makes it plain that salvation comes to us from God, not just through religious activity, but in fact, we must be born again. Salvation comes to those who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. 
Later in chapter 3, John the Baptist points people to Jesus. John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. And that indicates to us that Jesus is bringing something greater than every Old Testament prophet. So we've watched Jesus be superior to the tabernacle, to the Jewish religious teachers, to the prophets. Chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria and he brings salvation to the woman at the well and her village. And in that encounter, Jesus again declares that he's greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs that the Jews and the Samaritans claimed. And at the end of chapter 4, that latter miracle, the second sign in John's gospel, Jesus speaks a word and heals an official son from miles away. Truly the one God has been promising, the one who brings life, he has arrived The one the Old Testament foreshadowed is on the scene. Now we're going to start a look at chapters 5 to 10. And we're going to watch as Jesus teaches. And he's going to perform more miracles. And it's all going to be set against the backdrop of the different Jewish holidays and feasts. And the Jewish religious teachers are going to begin to strongly oppose Jesus. And we're going to listen as Jesus proves time and time again that he is God, that he's the one God has sent, and he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises that were only hinted at in the Law and the Prophets. So today, John chapter 5 is where we look, and we're going to see what I'm calling a display of Christ's power and compassion. There's going to be a miracle, and we'll find a couple of important points of application. So, you ready to jump in? Point number one, believe in our brokenness. Believe in our brokenness. I'm going to guess, by the way, you don't even need scripture to go ahead and agree that that that's true, right? (laughs) Look at verses one through three. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One of the beautiful things about reading the Gospels is you can see the truth of God displayed in dramatic narrative. You watch events take place that You can see in your mind's eye. You can can imagine this. You can picture this. And when you let your mind go ahead and see this in your mind's eye, when when you can imagine to yourself, what would this have looked like? What would this have smelled like? What would this have sounded like? You come closer and closer to grasping the glory of the Savior. So let your mind picture this scene. Picture it like, a, like, a, like the opening of a movie. The scene comes into view, and you get a little text across the screen that tells you that it's feast time in Jerusalem. You know, in the Old Testament, God told his people to travel to Jerusalem at least three times per year for three important feasts. They were Passover, the Feast of Weeks, sometimes called Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And each of those feast times also contained in their schedules very important, significant 
days of rest, special Sabbath days to the Lord. Now, the funny thing is here, we don't know which feast is taking place. Because here in John 5, what feast it is, is not the issue. The point of what we're going to see will be to put Jesus Christ in front of the backdrop of the Jewish Sabbath regulations. So if you were kind of taking notes of these miracles, you're going to say that John 5 contrasts or puts Jesus against the backdrop of the Sabbath. Other chapters are going to put him in front of other holidays. Now, as the camera view pans over the city, you can picture it, can't you? There are people in the streets. They're dressed in their best festival garments. They're offering prayers. They're celebrating the holiday. It's the Sabbath, so, so nobody's, nobody's buying or selling anything. No marketing's happening. The Jews were very strict about not allowing anybody to do work on the Sabbath. But the scene is one of peace. Rest, contentment, celebration. Now, I'm not saying it's super quiet, right? Maybe there was music. Maybe there would be singing of songs of praise to God. Maybe there would be expressions of gratitude to God for God's past faithfulness. Maybe there are hopeful cries to God for future deliverance. All that could be there. But then watch as the camera pans to the northeast corner of the city. Right, you can kind of picture it going up and to the right. The scene changes. The landscape itself is still beautiful. You're near a location that has a couple of pools being fed by natural underground springs. And the mineral content of the water in those pools gives them a kind of a little bit of a reddish tint. And surrounding one of the pools are five porches colonnades, the Bible calls them. They're structures that would look kind of like a picnic shelter in a park today, right? You got pillars on the corner supporting a roof that shades the people underneath. And as the scene surrounding these pools comes better into view, the feel changes noticeably. You can imagine that instead of the sound of music... There's the sound of buzzing flies. Instead of joyful singing, sad, painful groaning is there. Lying around the pools is a disorderly array of bodies, bandages, beds, stretchers, downcast faces. Looks like a war zone. Looks like a mash unit's triage center. The pool is surrounded by the sick, paralyzed, the blind, the infirmed of all shapes. Now, so far we've seen no action taking place. You've just seen the scene. But before we watch anything go into motion here, I want us to learn something. And this is an interpretive tool for you in lots of the New Testament, but we'll apply it here. When you see in the scripture sickness and death, you should remember the human condition as a whole. Sickness, death, sorrow, pain, 
all of these things serve as a reminder of a much greater reality. Let your mind go back to the book of Genesis. When God created the world, he did it with a purpose. God intended that all things would serve to point to or display his glory. The vastness and the beauty of creation shows us the power and the artistry of God. The minute details of cells and molecules and atoms and other little bitty things remind you of the perfect wisdom and intricate knowledge of the Creator. The sweetness of a mom caring for her babies reminds us of the provision and kindness of God. The commitment and love of a husband and wife reminds us of the unbreakable commitment of God to His own. Everything God made was made to show off God's perfection, God's greatness. I think you guys know this story by now. Tempted by the devil, the people God first created rebel against him. Adam and Eve chose not to yield to the one restriction God had given them. Can you imagine living in a world with only one rule? By the way, have you ever noticed the more sinful we get, the more rules show up? In the garden, how many rules? Mount Sinai, how many rules? Ten. You look at the tax code today? It's bad. Adam and Eve chose to try to govern their own lives. They chose to try to determine their own morality apart from God. And the rebellion of Adam and Eve led to great hardship in our world. Let me read it to you. Genesis 3, 14 to 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust." And to dust you shall return. When the people God made sinned against God, God pronounced his judgment. The devil would face destruction under the heel of the Savior God would one day send. The woman would face increased pain in childbirth and increase of conflict in marriage. And the man would, for the rest of his life, suffer the effects of death. The world's cursed. The ground would not yield crops easily. Work is going to be hard. And human beings would die. Understand this. All sickness, 
All death, all disease in our world is the direct result of the curse humanity earned because of the sin of Adam. Romans 5.12 would tell us sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And now all the universe groans as it awaits a day to come when God would turn back the effects of the fall of man and set right what's gone wrong because of sin. Look at Romans 8 verses 19 to 23. You tell me how familiar this feels. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, in our experience, creation is broken. You guys know what that feels like? Life is not as smooth as we wish it were. Is that true for you? Yeah, yeah. right? Work, work is harder than we want it to be. Yeah, that sounds true, doesn't it? Every, every town leveling tornado, every village demolishing earthquake, every crop destroying flood reminds us that the very creation we we live in, has been tainted by the fall and it longs for restoration. And one of the clearest ways for you and me to see the result of the fall is in human sickness. You ever get tired of sickness? From little things like colds to big things like cancer, every hardship our bodies face remind us that we're living in corruptible flesh. Every ache and pain, every sore back, every cracking knee joint reminds us that the body we live in, the bodies we live in, they're not sufficient to last forever. Every blinded eye, every deaf ear, every pair of legs that will not move remind us that God has not yet turned the imperfect perfect. And when we see this ugliness, we must see it in contrast with the perfection of God. Our Lord is perfect and whole. God has no flaw. God has no weakness. Even the rebellion of humanity did not catch God by surprise. Our rebellion did not mess up God's plan. Our sin did not overpower God. While God did not cause us to sin, God knew what Adam would do with the freedom God gave him, and God would use even Adam's rebellion to display God's absolute perfection. So when you see the scene of hurting people lying on mats around a pool hoping for the chance of healing, you see people unable to work, reduced to begging, 
When you see these pictures in the Bible, you must see that they're pictures of the human condition. They remind us that as a people, we are rebels against God. We've brought upon ourselves destruction. We're desperate for God to rescue us. God God has to rescue us. God's clear. Just because a person gets sick, that doesn't mean that they're sick because they sinned to cause their sickness. Right? You get a cold, that doesn't mean you did something bad this week. That's not what we're learning here. But what we're learning is that all pain, all sickness, all death is the result of our original sin. So, with the still picture of the people by the pool in mind, what do you see in yourself? You and I are living in bodies that wear out. We're living in bodies that are easily hurt. We're living in bodies that will not last. And why? We're living in broken bodies, occupying a broken world because we're a people under the curse of sin. We are affected by the sins of others. We're guilty of our own sin. And the wages of sin is death. The hardship and the heartache of this world should impact us. It should make us long for healing. It should make us remember that this world as it stands is not our home. We want not to live on a broken world forever. We want to live in a perfected, a cleansed, a redeemed world. We need brand new bodies that will last forever. So let the dark picture, though, go deeper than your body. You and I don't just need physical healing, do we? We need spiritual life to be given to us. Those folks around the pool were utterly helpless to change their situation. And you and I are totally helpless to change our human condition apart from the grace of God. We have sinned against God, we deserve God's judgment. For the people by the pool, if God does not intervene to heal them, they're not going to be healed. And for you and me, if God does not intervene to save our very souls, we are not saved. All sickness and pain point to the ugliness of the human condition. And without Jesus, that condition is hopeless. Here's the question. What happens when Jesus hits the scene? Hope. Happens. Point number two. Believe in Jesus for life. John chapter 5. Let's look at 5 to 9. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. 
Enter Jesus, the Lord of all creation, walking among the mass of strewn bodies, moving with compassion and purpose. Our Lord doesn't hesitate to show tenderness and care to those who were broken and ill. Jesus was not afraid to touch the sick, to get his hands dirty. He didn't shrink back from those who looked or smelled really bad. He loved people even in their ugliest conditions. As you imagine this picture, this ugly war zone hospital, ponder the compassion of Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? You got to learn that you should be willing to reach out to people in need. Extend a helping hand in Christian ministry. We got to learn to love those in need as much as we love those who are pretty and who are clean and who are whole and who can give to us as much as they need us. We can learn to be like Jesus by caring for all people the best we can. Well, Jesus walks up to one particular man beside a pool that day. The man was maybe the saddest figure there. He'd been there lying helplessly for a long time. He'd been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus, the Lord who knows all things, knew that this man had been in his state for a lifetime and he purposed to do something that would display the glory of God. So when Jesus came to the man, he asked the invalid a very interesting question. Do you want to be healed? It's a strange question. The man was lying beside the pool because the people believed the pool's waters had healing powers course he wanted to be healed right well like all the conversations we've seen jesus have in this book so far he's going to say something here he is saying something here that gets the man's attention and the man for his part responds to jesus by explaining why he wasn't healed instead of saying yes i want to be healed that would be great thank you he just tells jesus why he's not physically able to get himself into the pool And by the way, for that to make sense at all, you might need to look at a footnote in your Bible if you're using something other than King James or New King James. Um, How many of you are reading an ESV or New American Standard Bible? Most of you, okay. How many got something that's King Jamesy? A couple of you do, okay. So you guys will notice some differences here. If you're reading through this passage in... A more modern translation, I would suggest more, mo- uh, more reliable to, for, to some degree here. You're going to see, if you're looking at your ESV Bible, that there's not a verse 4. Do you see that? 1, 2, 3, 5? That is not how we count. <laughs> Unless you go to public school. That, that, see, that wasn't nice at all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't plan that. Verse 4 is not present in the more modern, more reliable translations because it just can't be found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. In the New King James Version, verses 3 and 4 read as follows. We'll put them up for you if Josiah's got it back there. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. 
I'm going to bet most, most of you that's somewhat of a familiar thing, even if it's not in your copy, correct? Now, if those words were not originally in the manuscript, the oldest manuscript, the one John wrote down, how'd we get them? The best surmise is that in John's day, people knew that a superstition had grown up around that pool. Occasionally, the pools, they were fed by an underground spring. Sometimes when the spring was moving in a certain way, it would cause the water to bubble up and stir. And people who lived in Jerusalem had begun to believe that this was the activity of an angel and that the first person into the pool was, in fact, going to be physically healed. By the way, it's not at all unusual for cultures to think that there's unique healing properties to springs, right? How many people go to hot springs and look for a place that they think will make them better? Well, when John wrote about the paralytic complaining that nobody was able to put him into the water when it stirred, the original readers that John was writing to would have understood what the people believed But as time went past, as years went by, the familiarity with that legend in Jerusalem would have dwindled. So probably what happened is that a scribe made a marginal note about it, right? I'm going to say, hey, by the way, here's why he thought this. Here's why people thought this. Maybe another scribe inserted that just into the flow of the text as an explanatory note. Eventually, that note became part of the manuscript series that was used in creating the King James Version, eventually the New King James Version. Honestly, a lovely, lovely manuscript and good stuff. But as time went by, scholars found older, more reliable manuscripts, manuscripts that were more near the original writing. And the vast weight of manuscript evidence shows us that verse 4 isn't likely original to John's writing. And that's why your ESVs and your NASBs and your HCSBs or CSBs or NIVs won't have them because they'll say, you know, the oldest manuscripts we can find don't contain these words. Now, just a little side note. I want to offer a word of caution to you or maybe comfort to you. Don't let what I just told you related to verse 4 discourage you or in any way cause you to doubt the reliability of Scripture. We believe that the Scriptures in their original autographs are absolutely perfect, divinely inspired, and without error. We also believe that God has done some great work to supernaturally oversee the preservation of His Word And that we have in front of us, in our hands, and our phones, and depending on how you're reading it, the genuine, real, authentic Word of God. But, you know, ancient writings of antiquity, if you go back and you find the annals of Tacitus, the historian or whatever, you might find ten copies of his work. So it's pretty easy to to say, oh, this is what they say. When you find copies of the New Testament, you'll find five, six, seven thousand copies manuscripts depending on what you're looking at i've heard numbers upwards of ten thousand, if you can count fragment copies there's more manuscript evidence for the new testament than any writing in history and yes there will be a very few variations found in a very few sections of the manuscripts which shouldn't shock you considering that it's been two thousand years since they were written down But none of those variations 
impact a single biblical doctrine in any sense. Most manuscript variations involve the different spellings of names. Questionable words, questioned verses like verse 4, make up less than one-tenth of one percent of the scriptures. And the fact is, if you want to know that you've got the word of God and you want to know it's trustworthy, you want to know that I'm grateful to God that there have been faithful textual critics who've gone back and they've compared these thousands of manuscripts and if they find variations, this has a verse that this one doesn't have, you know, look at them and say, okay, 999 copies don't have this verse, one copy does, probably the 999 are more reliable. That's good. That means, friends, that we can know we've got the most faithful most accurate copies of Scripture possible. Don't let that stuff discourage you. I want you to know, because I don't ever want to gloss over stuff with you guys. I want to tell you the truth always. And the truth is, you can trust your Bible. Now, let's go back to thinking about the man by the pool, right? We almost lost him. That man by the pool had no hope. He had no help. He was looking to the water of a pool, that's the wrong place, to find healing. Then Jesus, knowing full well that this man had no idea who Jesus was, this man had no idea what Jesus could do for him, he gave the man a three-part command. Jesus looked at the man and said, Get up, pick up your bed, little thin straw mat, and walk. Do you remember back in John 1, the prologue, verses 1 to 3? We learned that Jesus is not only the Son of God, the way some people might say, He's God. God in the flesh, right? He's God, the creator. How do I know that? Look back at at John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Look at this, please. What was made through Jesus, according to verse 3? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creator, God. Now, think with me. How did God create the world? God spoke the world into existence, right? Right now, before your very eyes, the very God who spoke the world into existence commanded this man who had been sick for a lifetime to get up, pick up his bed, and walk. And that man had no more choice about being healed than the sun could have chosen not to shine when God said, let there be light. Yeah, the man was healed. Strength came into muscles that hadn't been used for 38 years. He got up, he took up his bed, and he walked. If the sick and the crippled people around the pool illustrate for us the human condition, a condition of fallenness and hopelessness, then this man's healing illustrates for us something else. Jesus healed the man physically And Jesus has the power to heal people like you and me of our spiritual deadness. He comes to us and he asks us, do you want to be healed? And for all who come to Jesus, they are healed. They're given new spiritual life to take the place of spiritual deadness. They're given hope of heaven in place of certain destruction in hell, which we all merit. 
All who call upon the name of Jesus Christ for grace are saved from their sin, forgiven, and given new life in him. This is what Jesus accomplished when he died for our sins and he rose from the grave. So Christian, let yourself marvel at the power of your Savior. He healed a man. By the way, he healed a man who had no faith and no good attitude. With one simple sentence, Jesus spoke him well. For you, Christian, he gave you spiritual life when you were dead spiritually. He brought you forgiveness of sin when you were on a path to destruction. Honor that Jesus. Give him praise. Give him glory. Give him thanks for making you alive. Give him your life. Give him your devotion. Give him your time. Give him your energy. Give him your hope. And take the message of his great love to the lost world all around you. And if you don't yet know Jesus, realize you're broken in your sin. Like the people around the pool, you need healing. You need more than healing. You need life, brand new life. Jesus will give that life to anybody who will ask him of it, for it. So I would just ask you this. Are you ready to believe in Jesus? To let go of control of your life and ask him for new life today? Let's pray. Lord God, we need you. We need healing We need life. And we need to be grateful for the life and the healing we've been given. And we need to trust you and magnify you and thank you. I would pray, Lord Jesus, that now today you would be pleased to bring us that healing, that life. Or maybe it's just that heart changed to gratitude because of who you are and what you've done. Bless this church to glorify your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.